Welcome to True Health Live. We explore and acknowledge basic truths in public health. If you're a student or a public health professional or just plain curious about public health in general, then this is the place for you. Join us. <laughs> Greetings, everyone. Peace, peace. So sorry we're a little bit late this dawning, but so glad that you could join us. Um, for those of you who will, we'll wait for the chat to come in and get a little populated. But I wanted to talk to you today. I'm so happy to have my co-host here with me. Unfortunately, Precious couldn't join us, but we do have Alia and Anushka with us. And we do have a special guest host who will be joining us shortly. Today is really important and it's special because we're rounding up our preventative medicine series. Um, You know, we thought we were going to go a little bit further, but we're going to save that for 2022, some other health screenings. So, so far, we've only gone over colonoscopies. We talked about mammograms during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And now, you know, we want to give the brothers and the men some love and talk about health screenings that are important to them, which are prostate exams. So... With that being said, um, it would be really interesting to have four women talk about prostate when we don't have one. So we brought in a ringer. So we'll be joined very shortly, as you can see on the screen, by Dr. Joseph Alkalal, who I'm so excited that um, he could join us um, for this talk as he is the an associate professor of urology and the director of medicine at New York Presbyterian Columbia, um, New York Presbyterian Columbia, New York Columbia Presbyterian. We get that right, <laughs> Columbia Presbyterian, um, and has a lot of expertise and insight to prostate um, examinations. So we'll be really excited to. Um, have Dr. Jaakalal join us in just a few. So um, just like a quick um, recap, like I wanted to like just talk about what prostate cancer is because that would be the, you know, that's why prostate exams are done. So we'll go over just like the very basic um, because we do have an expert with us who can take us through the um, nuances and all the details. But the prostate in and of itself is a walnut-sized gland located between the bladder and the penis. It's just in front of the rectum. And um, so, of course, like, you know, we've heard, like, it, it's a very intimate and personal exam when it's uh, when it's done. Um, and again, like, I can't speak to it because we don't have one. <laughs> and none of us on this screen currently have one. But, you know, from stories, I'm sure, like, we've all heard stories and, you know, just um, examples and um, of how exams are 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 performed. So I'm sure it's a very interesting experience for the for the doctor as well as the patient. Um, but again, like we check them because we know that um, prostate cancer is something that is um, real, right? Um, I even have a relative of mine who's, who's recently had to um, have some uh, procedures done regarding his prostate just to make sure that nothing happens. When you have a history of cancer, you know, you, you want to make sure that you check the prostate to make sure that nothing is metastasized. If you have a history of prostate cancer, excuse me, in your family, just the same way we have, we talked about having histories of colorectal or breast cancer. You want to make sure that you are, that you're, you know, having your prostate prostate checked. So for all of you men out there, um, you know, we want to make sure that you're healthy um, and that you're 
getting that, you know, getting that done. So like a little bit more about the prostate. Um, it actually produces the seminal fluid that nourishes and transports sperm. Um, but if you're having difficulty, some symptoms to watch out for are difficulties um, urinating. Um, sometimes you may not have any symptoms at all. Um, cancer of the prostate can grow very slowly. And sometimes like, you know, just like what we, we talked about last strong, when we discussed um, the routine exams versus, di versus diagnostic breast exams, sometimes monitoring is what is recommended. Um, and sometimes it's very aggressive and so monitoring is not enough. And so you have to be prepared for procedures that are necessary. So um, those are some of the things that we're gonna like get into today. Um, and maybe later have like some story time. So Dr. Alukal has joined us. Thank you very much. Um, we just gave, gave people like a little bit of um, quick insight on prostate, but I'm gonna turn it over to you as our guest host to like, just kind of give us the skinny on what the prostate is, why it's important to check it, you know, what the signs and symptoms are of prostate cancer and just like your expertise in the field overall. So like without further ado, I'm gonna hand it over to our expert in the room, Dr. Joseph Alukal. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Deirdre. Um, you know, I, I certainly I think your introduction is spot on. I think the things about uh, prostate cancer that are really unfortunate in terms of why guys can get confused by it and then why guys can get scared of it. Uh, prostate cancer, unfortunately, is the most common solid malignancy uh, in men. Uh, so it, it really is a common cancer. And I think a lot of the the unfortunate sort of misconceptions about it have a lot to do both with what's involved in the screening process that people have to go through uh, exams that they find uh, uncomfortable to talk about or think about, like a rectal exam or a transrectal ultrasound as part of, of diagnosing the condition. And then alongside that, they had this blood test that we're going to spend some time talking about today, a PSA test, which is understandably controversial for a lot of reasons on its own. It's not a great test. You know, it's got a lot of pitfalls. And so we have to, we have to think about that as we're interpreting those test results. So, Diagnosis can be a, a confusing and embarrassing topic for people, but then the actual course of the disease can be a confusing topic for people. So as you alluded to, there's people who show up with aggressive prostate cancer. Maybe it's already spread at the time of diagnosis, and maybe we've, we're limited in terms of the treatments we can offer patients. And then at the same time, guys will tell you stuff like, well, well I've got a buddy who I play golf with, and they told him he has prostate cancer, and they're telling him just to watch it. And so... All of this adds to the confusion, people people who just don't know what to do and are looking to try and avoid doing whatever it is they don't have to do uh, for understandable reasons. You know, the, as you alluded to, the prostate's only real function in our body other than to cause us trouble as we get older as men, it, it is a reproductive function. It makes the fluid that goes into semen. So understandably, when you start to muck around with something like that, you're going to have an impact on people's sexual and reproductive health. And so that's why patients are trying to duck this sort of thing whenever they can. You know, if, if my buddy who I play golf with does not get treated for this, why should I even look into it if looking into it means that maybe somebody is going to affect these vitally important functions to me? 
so it's it's kind of at the middle of this intersection of all kinds of, of different confusion, all of which is understandable. And the, the follow-up is, is certainly, you know, well, what can we do to minimize that confusion? And how can we help people both to understand why it's important to be screened for this disease, who are the people in whom it's most important to be screened for this disease, and then how do we guide people correctly in terms of helping them reach treatment decisions that are safe for them, that they understand and are happy with, um, and then what do we do if those treatment decisions don't turn out the way we want them to? So I'd hope, you know, this is this is a huge topic. I mean, you and I could talk about this for three straight days. I'm not kidding. But, I mean, I hope we can try and address some of those really important issues uh, with the time we have today. Yeah, I, th I think we can. And thank you so much for that background. So I guess, like, so, you know, as I said, like, this is really about, like, preventive medicine, right? And going in on, like, the health screenings and why they're important, which you just got into. So what about, like, some examples, like, can you share with us about, like, you know, who is who should be going to get exams and like when? So, for example, when we talk about like colonoscopies and breast exams, you know, there's a group of people that are, you know, higher risk. Like, obviously, if you have a history of colorectal or breast cancer, you, you know, you want to start. But then there are people who it's like, you know, it's routine. You know, when you reach a certain age, you, you should go do this. So can you share with us some of that information? Sure. I, I think. Colonoscopy is a great place to start because people understand it and at the same time have some of the same kind of hesitations about, hey, I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk to people about this. But, you know, the, the bad news is we're watching this happen in men right now, that men in the United States are getting diagnosed with more advanced colon cancer at younger and younger ages. And so right now, the recommendations about when do you start screening a man for colon cancer, those are changing very often. You know, we're now telling guys younger and younger, hey, you should you should get a colonoscopy done. And so when I talk to people about that, I want them to understand, well, well, you know, imagine an absurd example of me telling you, you told me, doctor, I've got four men in my family who had colon cancer before they turned 50. And I'd say, okay, I'm glad you brought that to my attention. Let me send you to a colleague to get you set up for a colonoscopy. We got to be aggressive about screening you at a younger age. And then let's imagine that that patient told me, you know, I'm really worried about this. You know, I, I lost a couple of my uncles, uh, my dad and his other brother who survived. You know, they're not doing great. Uh, I'd like to get a colonoscopy every day for the rest of my life. That guy, I could tell him, hey, we're, we're, not, we're not thinking about this the right way. I understand why you're afraid, but I also understand that what you're talking about is an extreme overreaction to your concern and it's going to keep you from living your life. We want to do this to catch your disease earlier so we can manage it. But we also want to do that with the big picture goal of you being able to live your life. Go to your job. Be happy with what you're doing professionally. Come home. Be a member of your household who contributes however you can. Be happy with that. If you spent all your time doing colonoscopies, you're not going to be able to do any of that stuff that's important to you. So that that's the extreme, right? And most people aren't coming to me with, Although, you know, it's New York, some people come with some pretty extreme suggestions when they come in to see you in the clinic, but most people aren't suggesting something, you know, that over the top, but people can get carried away with this idea. Okay, so, so in the same vein, prostate cancer is a disease that very much has a family history component. If you have family members who had prostate cancer at a young age, we should be thinking about screening you more aggressively. If there are women in your family with breast and ovarian cancer that has been demonstrated to be due to a BRCA mutation, a very specific genetic cause 
that makes family members with that mutation more likely to get breast and ovarian cancer, that also speaks to the men in that family with that mutation having a higher risk of prostate cancer. So that's another important group and lots of families that understand this risk now and are getting tested for this mutation. And lastly, African-Americans. And so if you're African-American, you are more likely to develop prostate cancer at a younger age, and it's more likely to be aggressive. And unfortunately, in this day and age, I still can't believe that this statistic is real. If you're an African-American diagnosed with prostate cancer, you're twice as likely to die of the disease than a, a Caucasian of the same age diagnosed with prostate cancer. So, you know, I've got to be more, uh, you know, engaged with my African-American patients to help them to understand, hey, this disease is coming after you, so we've got to be more vigilant about it. So it's, it's, a, really, it's a really loaded discussion. It scares people for lots of reasons. And that's before you get to the idea that there is confusion that's baked into how do we screen people. Okay, so for the longest time, we didn't have a blood test. If I wanted to screen somebody for prostate cancer, all I had was the, the famous finger exam of their prostate. No guy wants to sign up for this. Every guy's embarrassed to have to do this. When I talk to guys about it, I tell them, hey, if nobody's done this in a year, I hate to say it, I should do it. And it's a few uncomfortable moments, but afterwards you get a year's worth of peace of mind. Let's just do it. And, you know, lots of guys will understand that and they'll say, OK, I'm, I'm going to do it, doctor. I, I you know, I, I'm not happy about it, but let's let's get this done with. But the bad news is this isn't good enough for me to adequately screen people for prostate cancer. And, and that's evident by the fact that in the early 80s, when we developed this blood test called PSA, that's our other tool for screening men for prostate cancer. It was about 40-plus thousand men every year in the United States who died of prostate cancer, and they represented the majority of the men diagnosed with the disease. So if you diagnose 50,000 men a year and 40,000 of them died, you know, that tells you, okay, we're not doing a good job catching people when we can still treat them, and we're not doing a good job in terms of the treatments we have to offer them. Too many men found to have the disease are dying from it. By the end of the 90s, those numbers changed a ton. We were now able to say that it was probably only 20,000 men every year in the United States, give or take, who were dying of prostate cancer. So we made an improvement in the, the death that was specific to the disease, but we were diagnosing many, many, many more men, uh, give or take, about 200,000 men a year. So the notion was now we're catching all these men who have prostate cancer before it has spread before you could say it's it's aggressive but the question that we're we're then forced to ask ourselves is what are we doing to treat those men and are we doing the right things and that that's a it's a big topic and and very confusing but the the notion that in there was the the question of do our treatments cause men more trouble than it does them good than they they are done good if a man gets treated for prostate cancer and tells you, well, those guys told me that, that I was in danger of dying of this disease, they took out my prostate, but then for the rest of my life, I had urinary problems and I had sexual function problems, so I wasn't happy with that either. Have we done that gentleman a favor? And I would, I would give you two extreme examples, again, to help you understand that there's no right answer to that question. Imagine that the first guy who told me that was a 45-year-old man at the time of his diagnosis and treatment who had a bunch of family members with aggressive prostate cancer. 
and that the next guy was a 75-year-old man sick with heart disease, diabetes, a bunch of other medical conditions. The second guy, I'd say, you know, we probably didn't need to treat that cancer the way we did and sign him up for all these problems. The first guy, I'd say to him, we did the right thing. At least we kept you alive. Now let me solve your other problems. If you're leaking urine, let's talk about other treatments for that. If you are having problems with erections, let's talk about other treatments for that. But we treated your cancer, and your cancer was the kind of cancer that, that was going to try and kill you. Of course, those are, again, two extremes. But when to go back to your question, it's the guys with family history and African-American patients where I'm more likely to be suspicious that they're in that 45-year-old's group. I've got to be more aggressive about screening yeah. them, and I've got to be more aggressive about treating them. Lot, lots of research on the, the why. And, you know, for the longest time, like when I was in training still, the, the commonly held belief was it was not a genetic predisposition. It was actually due to environmental exposures and different health behaviors in the United States. And then I was a resident when uh, a U.S. trained urologist who'd come from Africa, done his medical school and residency here, and then went back to West Africa and has just been incredibly important in terms of the public health information he's put out there about the disease. He was like, you guys are wrong about this. You know, you're telling us that there's more prostate cancer in African-Americans, but that you don't think it's in Africans. But I'm telling you, it's here in Africa, too, and it's more aggressive. It's just that we're not doing a great job identifying who's got this disease. If somebody shows up with, you know, disease that's spread throughout his body and he gets sick with an infection, he dies in the hospital of an infection. We are not walking that back far enough to know that the reason that patient was sick in the first place was his prostate cancer. We're just saying he got an infection with something and he died. So that research was the first time we started to ask the question, well, could this actually have a genetic component in African Africans and African-Americans? And the continued work on that front shows us that the answer is yes, but the, the prostate cancer genetics piece is super confusing. Like if, if BRCA mutation is one of the things that we do understand, there's another list of like 99 things that we don't yet understand, and they occur sporadically in different populations. And so we're still trying to get a handle on that. Can somebody offer patients, for example, a comprehensive genetic test that says, hey, We've got here a list of 500 different mutations that might increase your risk of developing prostate cancer that you need to know about. Let's check you for all of them. That would be a great advance. Unfortunately, we don't yet have that test. You know, we each year we get a little bit better in terms of being able to say to people, well, we've, we've got some genetic testing to offer you, but the genetic testing we have is not comprehensive. So that's before you get to the other part of what you're talking about, which is, what are the things that we think are more common in the African-American community that are keeping people from being diagnosed with this disease at an appropriate point in time? And that does include things like, obviously, access to care and education regarding healthcare behaviors. Okay, so, so you know, before you get to the, the differing comorbidities or disease burdens in the community, I would simply say that the, the things we ought to be working on fixing are making sure that the African-American male can get to a doctor who's going to take care of them the right way, and alongside that, making sure that that patient understands that going to that doctor is something that can help his overall health and not harm him. Because I talk to men all the time, and we've had this conversation in the past year, especially as it relates to things like COVID and vaccination, 
men who fundamentally don't trust the interaction they're going to have with any doctor. That's, that's a massive barrier, and it's not helping people. It's hurting people. And so I'm always, I'm always trying to get people to understand, well, hey, you know, last I checked, the overwhelming majority of us are here to try and help you. You're right. We aren't perfect. We don't always make recommendations that are going to be, you know, a thousand percent correct a thousand percent of the time. But we're trying. And, you know, we can help you to understand some of the decisions that you're faced with as well as you can such that you can make a decision you're comfortable with. And of course, none of us has a crystal ball. You know, I can't tell you that I know that choosing to treat your disease is the right choice or the wrong choice. The only thing that's going to tell us that is time. But you know, if you trust me, we can walk that road together and I'll stay here with you until we know that we did the right thing. And if we didn't do the right thing, we'll figure out what to do about it. There are certain populations of women, uh, and you're absolutely correct, most notably uh, Eastern European uh, Jewish and ancestry, or the other uh, terminology is Ashkenazi Jews, in whom BRCA mutations are more common, most common. Although BRCA mutations do occur in populations from all over the world, it's it's just that that was the the group where um, it was it was first described. Um, I you know there are there are other mutations that we study in urology that are also sort of regionally biased. You know that the populations that come from certain places on the planet are most likely to have these mutations. And then, as a result, are most likely to have certain diseases, and that speaks to people's risk of kidney cancer, bladder cancer, other cancers that urologists take care of. But I, I think, you know, when we talk about those cancers, it's a really different discussion than it is with prostate and breast, because prostate and breast cancer are both so common that it, it's, which is unfortunate, it becomes really hard to say, well, everybody who has it, it's due to a certain genetic problem. It's not. There's lots of different roads that lead you to that issue, and they, you know, they're very specific to each patient. So, genetic predisposition to cancer helps us to understand what might happen in patients, but doesn't explain all the patients we see. So, I mean, there's there's multiple centers around the U.S. and around the world that are doing the work of genotyping the men who come in with prostate cancer. But the example I give patients. prostate cancer and its genetic component, it's a really, really difficult uh, topic. And the example I give patients is like, imagine you and I walked into like Costco or Target, okay? These are big stores with a really long list of inventory. Now imagine that I gave you a list of five or ten items and told you, go in there and just find those items and come back and tell me that they have this in stock, Okay. And you said, okay, fine, I, I, I did it, you know, it took me 20 minutes, I, I found the five items you asked me about, turns out that they're all here, or none of them are here. I would say, I hate to say it, but gene testing for prostate cancer right now is in that moment. The list we have to look at is, is just less than, you know, a tenth or a hundredth of a percentage of what's there and potentially playing a role. Like it's the difference between me handing you the list of the entire inventory of the whole store is what we want to work towards. Yeah. And instead, what we have is this short list, which is which is incomplete. And so the the 
only way we get to know what's supposed to be on the list is by stumbling across the patient who does have a genetic mutation, has prostate cancer, has somebody else in his family with the same mutation who has prostate cancer, and then we could say to ourselves, okay, this is one more thing to add to my list. But if my list has 10 items now and I need to get it to 20,000, that work is slow. And so, you know, we are all working on it. Um, I, I, you know, and things like, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the, the completion of the Human Genome Project, things like artificial intelligence and computing, all these things are adding to the speed with which we're getting making progress towards a comprehensive list of everything that's in the store, but we're still not there. And so, uh, you know, I would hope that it's not, you know, 10 or 15 more years down the road. I would hope that it's two or five years before I can say to a patient, we have a genetic test that speaks comprehensively to your risk of prostate cancer. Um, and, you know, I, I would suggest in that case that in people with a family history or people with uh, a a predisposition based on their ethnicity that we should be saying here you should take this test in your 30s so it can t inform me how should we screen you for prostate cancer starting in your 40s um i hope we're around the corner from that but we're not there yet yeah um just i just wanted to chime in on what you were saying it's really really interesting especially with the correlation between the BRCA mutations um you know and men being carriers of that mutation and then leading you know, potentially being at more at risk of having prostate cancer. Um, but just, you know, moving away a little bit from, you know, the genetic uh, predispositions that, you know, a patient may or may have um, and family history. Are there any other preventative measures um, that you could take or you could advise or recommend that, you know, someone could minimize their risk? I've heard like just just to kind of throw something out there, just gut microbiome and, you know, um, ha you know, potential resistant to treatment uh, in some prostate cancers. Um, would you recommend, is there a specific diet that you would recommend that someone could follow, um, that kind of thing? I'd love sure. to know more about that. Certainly. Uh, so from an overall prevention standpoint, and, and the, the simple preventive measures that I can always make regarding any disease process that we study with no exceptions, if you smoke, quit, and doing whatever you can to manage your weight. So that's diet balanced diet, exercise with a goal towards weight loss. And so smoking does speak to an increased risk of prostate cancer, not to the same degree that it has an increased risk of bladder or lung cancer. Um, and then obesity is actually well known to correlate to both a higher likelihood of prostate cancer and a higher likelihood of aggressive prostate cancer at time of diagnosis. So managing your weight can actually speak to that specific uh, risk of aggressive prostate cancer. But to go back to your question, there is some dietary research that suggests that lycopene, which is a dietary supplement found in cooked tomatoes specifically, watermelons specifically, it may have a meaningful impact with regard to, to prevention of the development of prostate cancer. Also, some of the antioxidants found specifically in pomegranate and pomegranate juice. And these very, very specific dietary recommendations have been borne out in studies that I, I think are are reasonably trustworthy, okay? The inverse, a study that, that just always scares me and confuses me, and I wonder why people don't talk about it more, really, really well-done study of thousands of men in the Veterans Administration system 
where they were trying to use vitamin E and selenium, very common men's health supplements, to prevent the development of prostate cancer and observe the exact opposite, that the men taking the supplements were more likely to get prostate cancer. The follow-up study where you know, they eventually stopped giving the supplements you know, within a short order of the study having started, but they did the correct thing and followed those men, all of them, uh, placebo or supplement, for another 10 years. And then published those findings in 2012 where they said, you know, this was not some sort of statistical anomaly or an accident. This was real. It looks like the supplements actually increased the chances that men were going to develop prostate cancer. So I've been telling men in my practice for years to stop taking vitamin E or selenium if they're taking them. Whereas I know that, you know, there's other doctors suggesting that it could be beneficial. The Internet suggests that it could be beneficial. So that's a simple dietary suggestion I can make that I think is borne out by science. Um, and I think that that's a similarly vast topic. You know, when we, we talk about the idea that uh, some part of the development of prostate cancer has to do with our hormonal function, and so much of our hormonal function does have to do with what we ingest. You know, I, I think right now we're beginning to scratch the surface of our understanding of what hormonal changes occur in our bodies if we're ingesting meat, for example, that's been treated hormonally prior to, to being processed. And so it's such a vast topic, and, and I, I don't know the answer, and I know that there's other people studying these questions, but they don't yet know the answers. Can I safely recommend to somebody something along the lines of, hey, if you avoided that entirely by eating a plant-based diet, it's going to change your risk of prostate cancer for the better? I can understand why someone might say that, and I might believe it enough to think about going plant-based like every other month. I'm not kidding. But at the same time, I don't yet have a study that proves that for me, okay? Doesn't mean that I'm right when it comes to my own prostate to hold off on going plant-based. Like, I, I have some suspicion that someday soon someone's going to offer us some data that says, you know, this makes a big difference. You guys ought to think about this. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a huge topic and a huge question and, and an important question. You know, really warrants more study, uh, ongoing study. I just want to that. That is. I just want to hop in um, because working, I work a lot heavily with the community at large. And I remember going out and talking about prostate cancer and having like, you know, this whole discussion. There were a lot of elders and elder men in the crowd. And I, you know, went up to them and we, you know, mixed and mingle afterwards. And I would ask, you know, have you gotten screened and how is that going? What's your experience like? And I, nine out of 10 are so fearful, even in later on in age. So I can only imagine yeah. what the younger generation feels like. It's between that prostate cancer screening and colonoscopies. And so I wanted to ask you, because you have a very human approach with your patients. And I love that because it's not just clinical. It's not just doctor patient, but it's more like, I want to help you and, and you're my fellow brother. So let me, you know, share this education and knowledge with you. So what do you? us as women, what do you suggest? How, how can we encourage our men, the men in our lives, the men in our communities um, to get these screenings uh, sooner rather than later from your experience? How, what's the feedback that you've gotten? And like, have, and can you give an example if you had a challenging patient that just was like, listen, I understand, but no, no, no. But the, but you overcame that hurdle with them and influenced them on getting screening. 
well, I, I'd, I'd like to thank you for your kind words. I, I hope that the that I try and approach this in people coming to them from the perspective of just as you say, their brother. And so, you know, the the notion that we can only help people if they let us help them. And that has to start with creating trust between two human beings. I'm not there to be their teacher or some expert. They they have to view me as someone they trust before they're going to let me do something like this. I recognize that that is a that is a time consuming effort. You know, there's a lot of people where I got to talk to them about this on more than one occasion before they're going to say, "Okay, I'm ready, doc." You know, can can you give me the name of that guy who's going to do the colonoscopy? Or can you examine my prostate? And there, there's still people in my practice where I, I'm struggling with that on an ongoing basis, you know, as recently as last week. You were saying this, and, and a gentleman popped into my head, someone who I've seen a couple times and I'm still having these conversations with. And, you know, eventually we'll get to a point where I hope he trusts me enough to, to let us move forward with this. The... I, I don't know. I, I think the the preconception about either colonoscopy or prostate exam, I think it comes from people saying to themselves, "If I let anybody do anything back there, I'm less of a man." And when I'm in a room with a patient, I'm trying to argue with them the opposite: that being a man involves doing the stuff you're supposed to do in order to keep yourself there and in the game for all the people around you who care about you and for whom you care for, right? So in in my family, that's me thinking about my children. Now, not everybody I see has children. Not everybody I see has family or family relationships that they feel comfortable about. Not everybody, some of the people I see are alone, you know, as completely alone as you can imagine. So they don't have to do this for somebody else. They have to do this for themselves. And so I, I it is hard. You know, once years ago, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about people where, you know, we're thinking of it from the perspective of somebody who doesn't have access to care. Once years ago, I was taking care of somebody who you'd recognize on TV in a second as, as someone very wealthy and well-known who asked me the question after I convinced him to let me check his prostate. Doctor, let me get this straight. You have this negotiation with men. How many times a week do you think? I don't know, 50, 60? He goes, do you always win? Do you always end up eventually checking somebody's prostate? I go, yeah, most of the time I eventually get this guy around to agreeing with me to let me do this. He goes, and so the prize for your successful negotiation thousands of times a year is that you get to stick your finger in somebody's bottom? I go, when you put it like that, obviously, I'm not where you are, because if I was smart enough to recognize that I could win this negotiation over and over again, I should be doing something else. Maybe you're right. But I do think about the idea that what I'm doing, hopefully, is a good service for people, that it helps them either to know, like I said, that they've got a year where they have some peace of mind. Nothing's going wrong back there. I don't have to think about it. Or if we figure out that something's wrong, hopefully we're catching it sooner rather than later so we can offer somebody treatment. Absolutely. I think the win, though, is when you win those debates, um, well, not debates, but negotiations, you're practically saving someone's life um, if anything is there. Right. So um, I, I, as you're talking, I was just thinking about the 
debates that I have with like loved ones, like my partner's open though, because I've worked in, in this field and I get to share what I learn and my knowledge. So it's like, you know, prevention is better than cure. And that's his model anyway. Sure. So I played off of that. Um, but I have another family member um, who was adopted when he was a baby. And so we have no knowledge of his family history. Um, really the last person that did, that we kept communication was his grandmother. And unfortunately she passed away a few years ago. So he's not as open-minded as my partner is, but um, I've been having conversations and talking to him because he's getting older. He, he's fairly young, he's only 38, but um, giving like the, the history that we don't know. Um, and he's not one of those people that's very like, oh, well, let me, let me keep track of my annuals and let me continue to get checked. He's not one of those people. So it's very hard to have these conversations, but um, I'm trying. <laughs> so that's why I sure. ask you because it's not only our loved ones, it's also, like I said, when we go out in the community and we're helping um, men that are like, you know, our fire firefighters or giving back to the community or just really just our neighbors. Um, how do we have these conversations? Rather it be me as a friend or, you know, someone as a wife or a partner, a, a, a sister, a brother, whatever the case may be. Um, mm -hmm. Just because, you know, it, it's great. Like when we are knowledgeable, um, because it's a each one teach one, but not all the time is that education um, receptive and people are not as open-minded. So I just wanted to share that because it can be challenging, but I think if we keep doing the work and having physicians such as yourself really sit there and speak to people like human beings and really try to make these like everyday examples using Target and Costco, <laughs> like it opens up the conversation, right? Because it's yeah. like, it, it takes away the the stress I feel and the pressure, like, oh my God, it, it takes away the concentration of the actual screening and all the like details of it, but it mm -hmm. connects with them more like, like I said, on a human level. And I think that speaks volumes and allows us to break through certain barriers. Thank you. Yeah, I have um, questions. First, is the sound better? <laughs> take, like, the yes. <laughs> the second question, is um it I, hopefully this isn't like taking us a little too far but i've noticed like there's an increase of 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 advertisements for medication for um ed which is erectile dysfunction so i was wondering like if that has any correlation with processing in either direction like so that's like then i have to follow that but like so there's like is it are people experiencing erectile dysfunction because there's cancer, or is it erectile dysfunction because of um, yeah, and but maybe treated by uh, treated for prostate? Sure, uh, and I, I think I I think I caught the majority of what you're asking, but I'm going to restate the question. So, is is the kind of increase in like advertisement regarding erectile dysfunction medication due to the fact that we've got more men with ED? in part yeah. because of treatment for prostate cancer? Um, is there an awareness component? And and I think it's, I, I don't think it's all driven by men getting treatment for prostate cancer. Keep in mind that that's probably only something like 150,000 men every year in the US. Right. And you know, if, if you're a company like Pfizer having made Viagra while it was still on patent for many years, that was a more than billion dollar business because it wasn't just 150,000 men every year in the US. You know, it was it was a very, very common problem. We think it's something like 40 percent of 40 year olds who would 
answer a question on a questionnaire, yes, I have the sort of erectile dysfunction that I'd want to see a doctor about. So I think the, the prostate cancer piece is the tip of the iceberg there. But, you know, that's and that's, you know, maybe another topic for another day for us to talk about, because that's another problem that nobody wants to talk to anybody about. And yet I've got to remind guys, well, A, there's treatments we can offer you that are that are helpful. They're going to they're going to solve your problem. But B, there's also medical conditions that you need to know about that could explain your erection issues that that are important to catch early. And the simplest and most straightforward example of that is diabetes. So the man who sees me in his 30s or 40s does not know he's diabetic, does know that he has erection problems, and doesn't see any other doctors. You know, maybe the last time he saw a doctor was a pediatrician for a physical when he was in high school before he was playing sports. Right. And so that guy, he comes to see me as a urologist, and he doesn't want to be in the room either. He's embarrassed to be even talking to anybody about this. And I have to convince him to stay engaged long enough, not only to suggest to him that treatment is okay for him to take, it's safe, it's likely to work, but alongside that, that I need to do some tests to screen him for some other medical problems. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's an important part of the mission of Men's Health also. You know, again, getting people through the door. And, and dear to your point, you know, in the 80s, if you took 100 men and locked them into a room and told them, talk to each other about your prostate issues, your erection issues, you show back up an hour later, open the door, and there's going to be an awful lot of guys sitting on their hands. Nobody's making eye contact, and nobody's, you know, got their mouth open saying anything to anybody. Maybe they're talking football, okay? And the things that changed sort of changed in a lot of regards at the same time, like in parallel. So in the 90s, Viagra comes out. Viagra gets spokespeople like uh, Rafael Palmero, who was a, you know, famous baseball player for the Baltimore Orioles, but also uh, a Hispanic gentleman. And so, you know, spoke to people in his community, Bob Dole, you know, who'd run for president and is advertising for Viagra. So help people understand, well, this, this isn't that crazy for us to talk about. Here's somebody super serious. And yet he's willing to, to go on record and talk about this, how this drug has helped him. And so alongside people sort of recognizing it's okay to talk about these problems. At the same time, it became much more obvious. These problems are far more common than anybody suspects. Yeah. And then maybe it's another 10 years before it was a urologist who published a very important study that helped people to understand these problems predict your future health issues, uh, most notably heart attack and stroke. You know, it's as big a predictor as being a heavy smoker or having a strongly positive family history. If a patient in his 40s comes in and tells a doctor like me, you know, five years ago, I didn't have this problem, but now I do. It speaks to the idea that within five years, you're more likely to have had a heart attack or a stroke. So I got to get that guy along with a cardiologist. Mm-hmm. So all, all of these things are, are moving at the same time. And along those lines, I don't begrudge these online companies right now that are trying to grow awareness for these problems or to offer patients treatments. But I do begrudge the part that allows the patient the luxury of staying at home and never confronting somebody like me. Yeah. And conf- confront is a strong word, but you know, I would like to be able to offer those people the the truth about the notion that hey, you know, yes, we can treat your problem, but isn't that just sort of like a band-aid? Like we need to be figuring out why you have this problem. Right. And that's actually important to your overall health. And again, you know, your loved ones around you would would want to know that you were taking care of yourself like this. So um, I, I think that's 
growing awareness is important, but the secondary level to that is making sure people understand, okay, I should take this problem seriously. Even if I filled out an online questionnaire for company X, they sent me some generic Viagra in the mail and it works, I should still go see a local doctor to help me figure out what might be wrong with me. Now, that's separate from the fact that alongside all of this stuff, there's just a billion-dollar industry in terms of supplements that people aren't vetting well. They have hormonal stuff in them that's dangerous to to somebody's heart health or their prostate health, I mean, importantly. You know, that industry is filled with snake oil. And yet I think patients are so hopeful. I'd like to function the way I did when I was 20, doctor. So I'm buying something at the bodega that my buddy swears by and it's I've been taking it and I, I feel like a million bucks. I'm like, do you know what's in it? And, yeah. you know, no, I don't know what's in it. I'm like, do you know what the side effects are of what's in it? I do you. And, you know, I, and inevitably when I have these conversations, I'm like, you know, the problem is that people are being sold hope, you know, that they want to be able to. You know, live as a young man forever. Well, I hate to say it. There's no such thing as a panacea. Maybe the stuff you're taking is going to help you feel a lot younger, but that doesn't mean it's safe. So, you know, these conversations, yeah, I have them all the time. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's like it's not at all something. It's It's not that there's an epidemic. It's just these are common problems. And men being men, think about trying to solve them in a very – in the same way many many times and so you have to unwind some of that thinking and get people thinking proactively about well what i'm gonna i'm gonna use my brain i'm gonna take good care of myself i'm gonna solve my problem and i'm gonna put myself on better footing for getting healthy and staying healthy for the rest of my life right yeah i think it, it really speaks to um like you said being proactive like like first that realization so how to create a lifestyle so that even though you won't feel like 20 forever, you're prolonging your health, right? Like that's what public health is, you know, preventing, prolonging uh, life, promoting health. Like how do we make sure that people have that, as you talked about before, that education, like, like health, good health practices. That starts. Thank you so much for that answer. Well, I mean, so there, I think there's lots of parts to good health practices. You know, certainly getting into good habits, things like I, I don't smoke and I'm not going to take up smoking. If I am a smoker, I'm going to quit. Um, I'm going to figure out how to re- regularly involve exercise in my lifestyle. You know, try and keep my weight under control through exercise and maintain cardiovascular fitness. And I'm going to try and control my diet. And I... I don't get me wrong. I know it's hard. I, I I don't want to be a hypocrite. You know, the first person trying to figure out how to overeat whenever I can and nobody's looking. Okay. And it's okay. It's, it's a, and especially this past year, I think has sort of brought it to the forefront for all of us, you know, like looking around and seeing the people in our lives who we lost this disease, you know, re- being reminded of the idea that life is fleeting and we don't have a lot of control over it. We ought to be able to enjoy some of it. People who tell me, doctor, I used to be so good about my weight and the habits I had in my day-to-day life, but then I got locked in my damn apartment for a year and a half, and I started mm-hmm. eating what I could get my hands on, and maybe I had three drinks at the end of the day instead of one, and now I'm, I'm 40 pounds heavier, and all these problems that I started seeing you for 10 years ago, they're back. What do I do? Like, I hate to say it, we got to start trying to climb this mountain again. 
And so, you know, it, it it's just, it's really tough. I, I'm not here to judge anybody to make them feel badly. It's hard. And that's before you get to something like last year. It was already hard. And last year made it harder. And so I think it's it's just a journey that we got to recognize as human beings we're all taking together. But again, preventive care, um, being proactive about understanding our health, these are all just things that put us in a better situation in terms of if we find out that we have health problems, hopefully they are more manageable when we find out about them. How could that ever be a bad thing? Um, you know, it's it's that same kind of mindset of, I think I got some bad news in the mail. Well, I'm going to solve it by not opening this envelope. You know, I, I, again, teaching my kids, hey, that's magical thinking. That ain't going to yeah. work. The first step is opening the envelope, figuring out what's inside, and then what are we going to do about it? Right, right. So we're going to go over to the chat really quick before we close out. Um, I think, Anishka, can you see what's happening? So Kashia says, my father had cancer um, in his prostate. It progressed extremely fast. He had to get surgery last year in the midst of the uncertainty of the pandemic. He was skeptical, but was life-threatening. Now he's an advocate and eight other Black men in knowing the status. Absolutely. Okay, then I think we all was something else. Um, her brother is 31. Um, let's see. And his father, her brother's 31, and her father is insistent that um, that he stays on top of knowing his status as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, for, for starters, thanks so much for that comment. And, and you know, please pass along to your dad our, our thanks for being an advocate and being out there and talking about this experience. You know, we we got asked this question before, and I don't think I gave a specific answer. So here's somebody, if I understand correctly, her brother, her father's son, has a first-degree family member who had aggressive prostate cancer. So I would tell him that at age 40, he should start getting screened both with an exam and with that blood test of PSA. Now, PSA is controversial for a lot of reasons, including an abnormal PSA test. It's a blood test, and a high number is bad. But an abnormal result does not always mean that a patient has prostate cancer. Like that number can go up on you for other reasons like, doctor, I recently had a urinary infection. And somebody checked my PSA and it came back and it was 20. And it should be like 2. Well, it could be because of that infection. The opposite is also true. A low number in some people doesn't actually prove that they don't have a bad prostate cancer. And that's why we still have to do that silly finger exam alongside the blood test. Either one of those tests isn't good enough. The two of them together are pretty good, okay? But now, remarkably, a few years ago in 2013, an organization called the United States Preventative Services Task Force said that they had done some reading about the PSA screening, that it was a bad enough test that they gave it a letter grade where like an F would be the worst grade you could get, an A is the best grade you could get. They gave it a D. And in the aftermath of that D, it, their recommendations are so powerful that, that Medicare, for example, didn't have to pay for the test anymore in the aftermath of that announcement. That effect lingered for four years. Uh, I was on the delegation of people who went to Washington, D.C. to argue with Congress about how absurd this was, most notably because they based that recommendation on a study called the PLCO trial that had included in it amongst thousands of men not even 1% involvement of African-American patients. Absurd. 
So when you talk to them about the idea that here's a disease that's disproportionately affecting black and brown people, here's a study that did not involve in any way, shape, form, or fashion black and brown people, and here you have the, the need to have the test covered by insurance, and if Medicare and Medicaid is providing care insurance coverage for a disproportionate number of black and brown people, this is like a three-way miss. You know, you, you've all you've done is taken a disease that's impacting one community and then made it much more likely that that disease is going to hurt that community. How can that be the right answer? Uh, remarkably, they offered an apology, and that year they changed their recommendation from a D to a C. A C means that I got to talk about it with my patients before I offer the test, but that Medicare and Medicaid will cover it. That being said, in the four-year interval, we watch deaths due to prostate cancer go up every year in the United States. So PSA screening is so controversial that our governing body changed its recommendations and said they used to say that everybody should get a test in their 40s, and if it was normal, you could forget about it for a few years. If you had a strongly positive family history, keep checking it every year. Now they've gone so far as to say that if the test is um, offered to people, it should be offered again only after a discussion, and if you have no risk factors, no sooner than the age of 55. And they made no recommendation about what to do in high-risk patients anymore. So I still use their old recommendation and talk to my high-risk patients. Again, that includes African-Americans. That includes people with a strongly positive family history. I start talking to them at age 40. So I would talk to your brother when he turns 40 about checking that blood test. Thanks so much for that, um, Bonds. Um, I think that's all we had in the chat. Oh. I did have like a story time. So there's a family member of mine. Um, was diagnosed with um, cancer early on and has been in remission for years. And recently, he it was recommended, I guess they found something on the scan, and it was recommended that he undergo this procedure that was like a month long. And um, they, they, they did something with this seeds they only leave the seeds i'm so confused can you it sounds like you might know what that is so can you like give us some insight as to why something like that might happen sure so it sounds like and of course i don't know for certain but it sounds like what he had most recently was was radiation treatment for prostate cancer yes, yes. And, and so you know the idea that we do have men now who are being told you have a low-risk prostate cancer and you're an otherwise healthy man who comes in to see us, you know, once or twice a year. Let's watch it for a period of time and maybe we can watch it for years and not have it progress in you. And some people do have that kind of prostate cancer. If you remember at the beginning of all this, when I was rambling about the numbers of people who we diagnose with prostate cancer every year in the United States, if that number is around 200,000, give or take, and it's only about 20,000 men every year who die of the disease, there's a lot of guys mixed in there whose cancer is not doing them that much trouble on a year-to-year -year basis, okay? Mm -hmm. So as long as you think the patient's reliable, let's say you watch him for seven years and his PSA never changed and his exam never changed, his biopsies never changed, and, and then all of a sudden one day his PSA went up and his biopsy looked a little bit more aggressive. You could tell him, okay, great, we had a good seven years where you didn't have any treatment side effects to worry about. Let's talk about what our treatment options might right now might be and how can we safely put your cancer away. And so sometimes that's surgery and sometimes that's radiation. We have some newer treatments that we're offering people both in terms of different kinds of surgery and different types of radiation. 
and it depends upon uh, the the type of tumor, the location of the tumor, the amount of tumor, and the size of the guy's prostate before you get to things like how old is he, what are his other health problems. Um, but, uh, you know, that is something that does happen to people, many, many men now, and oftentimes guys are happy with it. Like, you know, I got a good 10 years out of this before they did something to me. And when they did something to me, it was something cutting edge, and my cancer appears to be taken care of. I don't have a lot of side effects. This has all been good news. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, so now that we're we're kind of coming out, I did want to just like thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of great information, um, and so this will definitely be available for audio coming next week. Um, but before we head out, I want to ask you. Is there anything that you want to leave our guests come to, like, kind of that that last, like, statement and call to action when it comes to health treatment? Don't be afraid to find a, a doctor you trust and to let that person help you get out in front of your health problems. If it's erections, if it's your prostate, we're here to help you. You know, it, just find somebody who you can have a conversation with and let them help you. That being said, are you accepting new patients at this time? I, I am. I am. But not everybody lives in or around New York, you know, but I, I appreciate the plug. I am. Yes. Okay. So do you mind sharing? Uh, or we can, we can even um, plug in, you know, your place of employment or a number for folks to reach you because this is going to reach a lot of people and the information was awesome and great. Um, so I'm sure, you know, people are going to take your advice and reach out. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here at True Health Live. Remember to like, save, share, and subscribe. Leave a comment and send an email if there's a topic if you want to discuss. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at True Health Live. You can also listen on DeidreSully.com. If there's a topic you'd like to discuss or hear, you can send an email to TrueHealthLive at gmail.com. See you next time.